This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason in the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me in the following presentation is my co-host, Dr. Robert Schmidt. Rob is the director of Taiyu Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, we feature a pre-recorded conversation with Professor Kate Crosby, author of Esoteric Theravada. Theravada Buddhism, often understood as the school that most carefully preserved the practices taught by the Buddha, has undergone tremendous change over time. Prior to Western colonialism in Asia, which brought Western and modernist intellectual concerns, such as the separation of science and religion to bear on Buddhism, there existed a traditional school of embodied esoteric and culturally regional Theravada meditation practices. This once dominant traditional meditation system, known as Bharan Kamatana, is related to, yet remarkably distinct from Vipassana and other Buddhist and secular mindfulness practices that would become the hallmark of Theravada Buddhism in the 20th century. Drawing on a quarter century of research, scholar Kate Crosby offers the first holistic discussion of Bharan Kamatana, illustrating the historical events and cultural processes by which the practice has been marginalized in the modern era. Kate Crosby is the professor of Buddhist studies at King's College London, her work focuses on Sanskrit, Pali, Pali vernacular literature, and on Theravada practice in the pre-modern and modern periods. Her other publications include Theravada Buddhism, Continuity, Diversity, and Identity, and the Bodhicaryavatara. Professor Kate Crosby, welcome to The Mystical Positivist. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Well, it's a pleasure to have you, and we will begin as we do now in our customary way with a first-time uh, interview with a guest, which is to invite you to cast your mind back to youth and childhood, and in this case, um, to um, consider any influences, any uh, moments that you can identify in looking back at youth and childhood that you could say prefigured your engagement with esoteric Theravada, with um, Buddhist spirituality in general, or any of the other topics that you raise in the book Esoteric Theravada that we're about to discuss. Thank you. Um, for me, my interest in Buddhism had a very clear start. So my mother would go up to London to visit a friend and while a friend was working during the day, she would take me off to museums. Mm. And in those days, the Victorian Albert Museum, which has a courtyard garden at the center, had a very large Buddha and she couldn't get me away. So I became very attached to this Buddha. And she said it was like trying to get me off a roundabout. So <laughs> I was just uh, fixated by the Buddha. And in my memory, I thought this was a kind of Gandharan Buddha. But recently, a member of staff tracked down this Buddha, which is now being lent to a Chinese um, monastery in in Britain, not in London, but in Britain. And it's actually a Kuan Yin. They don't know if it's Chinese or Japanese in origin. Mm. So my, my memory had changed this. But anyway, this was my um, early fixation. And my mother then encouraged me 
with any so if there was something on Buddhism or something on Asia going then she um, told me about it and took me to it so I was still a pretty young maybe four or five at this time mm. um, and and so that was the start I also had a very bad geography teacher who had been a Zen monk <laughs> instead of teaching us geography he taught us meditation <laughs> <laughs> So I'm hopeless at geography, but I, <laughs> I know my way a bit better around the mind than around the country. <laughs> Interior geography. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, in terms of esoteric um, meditation, well, meditation and just things happening to the mind, I think, interested me as a as a young child. You know, having those experiences, you know, this kind of watching the lights inside our minds or... Um, or just having um, very pleasant experiences next to a river, something like that. So I always had a bit of an interest in in meditation and and the different things our mind minds could do. In terms of why esoteric Theravada, um, actually my PhD supervisor, interestingly, I, I had two interests: a kind of a linguistic grammatical interest. I liked studying many languages. I was lucky to learn lots of different languages at school. And so I'd been interested in this kind of generative grammar that we have in Sanskrit. And um, so I had been thinking about a PhD on that and then also on meditation. And they said, choose meditation. You'll never have a career if you do anything with grammar. Um, and then strangely, enough, I mean, I spent ages trying to understand this text. I couldn't understand it. Um, but then in the end, the two things came together because the type of techniques for bringing about change that you use in generative grammar ended up being also used in meditation so they came together in that way well that's wonderful i'm just wondering before we move on to uh, uh, the discussion of generative, generative grammar which i think might be a good place to start so, because i'm sure a lot of our listeners won't know what that what you mean by that uh, but but i'm just first curious as to um, this context that you mentioned where your mother was encouraging you to um, pursue your interest in buddhism and um, was that in the context of of a, a faith system that that she um, uh, practiced herself or adhered to or had had experience with, or were you um, more or less a virgin spiritually uh, as a child? So my family is Catholic, um, and um, I should ask her that question because. It may have been she was simply trying to fob me off and keep me quiet with anything that would keep me interested. She had five of us after all, quite a lot of children in a very uh, short space of time. Um, so, and I enjoyed the Catholic Church as well. So I, mm -hmm. um, in fact, my mother stopped going, I think when I was around 10 and all my siblings stopped going. It had been, you know, for them, the chore of the week. But I, I carried on going and went to lots of different things to find out, you know, what was available around um, yeah, and my my sister married um, an Indonesian Muslim and converted, and oh. um, and studied Arabic, and I found that very interesting as well. So I think I just found these things interesting without um, having a specific allegiance or um, or sort of sense of a path or anything like that. Yeah, so just a, a broad interest. Um, that, that, I, I understand that. I, I too uh, grew up Catholic and uh, and was at the. Uh, um, I'm, I'm of an age such that as an altar boy, I had first learned the Latin responses 
and then a couple of years later, the English responses. So, so you get an idea of, of uh, my antiquity right there. But, um, but there is something, uh, I mean, it, what immediately came up to me is that in your book, Esoteric Theravada, there's, uh, I think, repeated mention of the response of British colonial authorities to the forms of Buddhism that, that they were finding in uh, South and Southeast Asia and um, a sort of comparison to popery or uh, the, um, uh, the Catholic um, elaborate system of practices. Yes, this assumption that anything elaborate must be a corruption. Yes. Yeah. <clears throat> right. So, so uh, I guess it'd be nice to jump into esoteric Theravada. Before we get into specifics, though, maybe just as an overview, you could frame for listeners what the Baran Kamatana is and what, what, is, what do you mean by that term esoteric uh, Theravada? And then we can jump into some of the details of what that actually, how, how you unpack that. Great, thanks. Um, so Theravada Buddhism, obviously, it's a, a source of meditation for us in the West as well, um, particularly with uh, Vipassana or mindfulness traditions. Um, and that type of meditation really comes from 19th century revivals, 19th century and onwards revivals, which look back to the early texts. Um, but I would say possibly from the 5th century onwards, we have developments within Theravada meditation which seek to work out the processes for bringing about change in great detail. And this leads to quite a complex meditation system. And that meditation system um, thinks about not just how we change our consciousness, but how that then changes the entire person. So it's a, a holistic practice, a somatic practice. And what they uh, sought to do was to draw in, so to create and draw in the qualities that lead to Buddhahood and um, and embody them in the individual. So there are all these processes for doing that. Now, I don't know when it really began. I think um, I say about the fifth century because that's when the commentaries are that most closely relate to it doctrinally. But it carried on until um, the colonial period. And in the colonial period, it starts disappearing for various reasons. Partly the technologies it resonates with, like it, it's, it relates to other means of bringing about change, like chemistry, um, like traditional medicine, and, and like the grammar I mentioned. And those start becoming um, less, um, sort of losing out in the competition with colonial knowledge systems. Um, so it gets, um, sort of loses out and gets suppressed for various reasons in the 19th century onwards. And so by the time Westerners begin to be interested in meditation, which is after all, mainly from the um, latter half of the 20th century, there's some interest in the early 20th century, but really getting access, latter half of the 20th century, this stuff has pretty much disappeared. Plus it's esoteric, it's a complex tradition, you're meant to uh, learn it with a teacher. And so it's not really visible to a casual observer. So that means we have this rich tradition, which began dying out in the modern period, um, but may have gone back centuries, um, which is really quite complex as to how to bring about change. Um, and there may have been many branches of it, but it seems to have been very widespread throughout the Theravada world. Completely Theravada in terms of its doctrine um, relates to Abhidhamma, um, but much more um, 
complicated and uh, physical, I would say, than, than what we tend to think of as Theravada meditation in the modern period. So is there a extent tradition still alive uh, of of this or is it or is are, are are all the modern practitioners reconstructed so there are living traditions um however it seems to me that what we have living now all of them are simplified to some extent so i uh, when i was studying this i looked both at the living traditions and the text and the process laid out in the text is much more complex and it um so if we think of abhidhamma as the um buddhist um analysis of causality how change happens these practices in the text that i found are taken throughout the entire process of change from an ordinary individual to buddhahood that we find in abhidhamma if i look at the practices as far as i can tell they give us the early stages of the these systems. I haven't yet found a living tradition that takes us through all of them. So probably the most traditional system is at um, Wat Raja Sitaram in, in Tonburi in Thailand. And that system is pretty complex um, and it has a long tradition. It has a, a kind of um, a heritage taking us back um, to the 18th century and beyond. But the um, at one point in it, you change from using these practices for samatha, so for the kind of um, training of the mind, over to the insight practices. And the insight practices don't use the same system. They've, they've gone over to um, what we think of as kind of reform um, Theravada, which is really based on, say, the, um, on the path of purification by Buddhaghosa, so the Visuddhimagga, or on um, canonical texts like the um, Mahasatipatthana Sutta. So these are these these two texts are really important texts for shaping modern Theravada practice. And the um, and so it seems to me that because of the way this esoteric Theravada uses things like um, lights that you uh, perceive when you're meditating, things like this that it was understood to be a type of summer to practice. Yeah. Whereas actually in these texts that I found in uh, mainly in Sri Lanka, the ones I look at, they have them from Cambodia and uh, Thailand as well and Laos. Um, in those texts, you use the same system with the insights you develop. So you also bring the insights into the body and transform the body with them. Hmm. And just, just to, uh, clarify that distinction that you're drawing um, uh, with the samutta and the pasana, uh, the pasana being inside, samutta being Samutta, it gets translated as tranquility. Um, it's really about making the mind malleable, training it to be able to focus. Mm. So all the kind of positive attributes of mind, strengthening it that you need in order to be able to work with it and develop insight. And in, in the traditional texts, that those two approaches are understood as uh, two parts of a whole. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. So um, in the earliest texts, they are two different outcomes that can come either from the same or different practices. Then they, in the fifth century with Buddha goes, so they get systematized in terms of preparation, the, the summit of being preparation for the, the Vipassana. And then in the modern period, 
where people are becoming afraid that the opportunity to gain enlightenment is going to disappear, there's a, an increased emphasis on the insight, the Vipassana practices, and then the Samatha ones are de-emphasized. So the uh, uh, so part of because in in the book you describe that the uh, reform movements for various reasons that we can get into began to emphasize the insight meditations more than the uh, uh, samutta or the concentration slash calmness tranquility exercises. Yeah. So in part you're saying that's a a response to a sense of urgency that we're in the end times and it, and uh, if we don't act now then uh, the the, the benefits of Buddhist teaching are going to disappear. Exactly. So the uh -huh. colonial period, so the if we just take the British, obviously there's other colonial um, powers, but the British, they moved um, huge numbers of people from India that had been used to supporting colonial power for longer into Sri Lanka, into Burma, in order to work the um Sort of the administration for colonialism and also to do the um, monocultures that gave the profit to, to Britain. And this um, behavior, uh, this economy of extraction, this movement of people, it caused all sorts of diseases. So not just the wars of um, colonialism, but also the processes, the economy afterwards. And then they uh, looted um, looted temples and destroyed things so so buddhists really were afraid of what was happening and they saw this as a sign that the buddhist teaching was disappearing and so the response to this um, for some buddhists was to say right we've only got this short opportunity we've got to try and meditate now and there were other practices as well so people um, taking responsibility for preserving the teachings to make sure they didn't disappear. So particularly in Burma, we have this reaction of trying to keep Abhidhamma uh, alive, partly because it was believed to be the highest truth and partly because it's the first text that disappears in the predictions of the decline of Buddhism. Oh. Mm. I didn't know that. <clears throat> and then we have this idea that everybody should be practicing meditation to make the most of the current moment where the dharma is still available interesting so so maybe this would be a good time to talk a little more about the the colonial influx and I, what was interesting partly about your description in the book is uh it really is a very complex set of interactions it, it, it doesn't quite fit into my simple story of uh, colonialism bad, you know, indigenous good. It, there's reactions, there's counter reactions, there's, you have the whole story of Thailand, which is trying to carefully position itself between colonial powers and how they had to do that. So, well, let me, let me also jump in here at the comment you made just a few moments ago about the movement of peoples for <laughs> the purposes of colonial administration, something that I don't think I'd ever encountered before. Um, uh, before this. And so um, that in itself um, is incredible, must necessarily have been incredibly disruptive, just the movement of peoples to engage yes. in this project. Exactly. So, it created huge epidemics. Um, I mean, awful loss of life among both the people moving and those who came into contact with them. Um, they didn't provide proper sanitation, the kind of racist ideas among the British meant that they didn't provide 
um, what they needed when there was when the crops failed they didn't provide sustenance there's also famines that were created by this mm. it really was devastating and of course the local people were often treated as the lowest in a very complex hierarchy as well yeah and and yet in the uh, you open the book with the descriptions of some of the colonial folks actually being interested in Buddhism Late, and, later on, yeah, though, <laughs> yeah, but that, but that that interest, you know, so you have administrators and intellectuals who have this interest and are writing about Buddhism, but but they have yeah. particular opinions. Most of the um, Sri Lankan texts I look at are in the British Library, and they got there because um, a colonial administrator called Hugh Neville went around collecting old and unusual manuscripts often he'd swap them for a new one or something like that and he had a Sri Lankan assistant who and he was very interested not just in um, Buddhism but anything locally so he sent a load of plants back to Kew and things like this and he and he was um, a really bad administrator so he never got promoted <laughs> but he was very <laughs> interested in the local culture and it's thanks to him that we've got the evidence really because as these um, as there were these reform reactions um, to try and bolster Buddhism in the face of colonialism they dropped this type of meditation the type of meditation that had been revived in burma became the, the meditation of the moment hmm. and the uh and the historical as I, as I recall the historical migration of uh Bron kamatana in southeast asia seemed to come at least it got to sri lanka through thailand right through a prior to the colonial period it was more of a um, a mission that's right. So it's actually in the early colonial period. So the um, the Dutch had control in the 18th century of the coastal region of uh, of Sri Lanka, and they had replaced the Portuguese. So Sri Lanka has, a, in the coastal areas, very long um, tradition of uh, European colonialism, and this led to uh, concerns about the state of Buddhism. There was also um, there were also internal politics going on. I've got to say, so it's not just a simple colonialism Buddhist um, uh, sort of reaction. Um, but the so they sought help. The Buddhists of the interior sought help from the king of Thailand to um, restart Buddhism. Now I say there were other things going on. So one of their aims here was actually to bring over one of the princes from Thailand and. Um, kill the king so this is what the locals were trying to do kill the king and put the, uh, a new king on the throne and they did try and assassinate him so the the monk that was involved in bringing buddhism um this buddhist meditation over later on ended up in prison wasn't killed but ended up in prison for trying to assassinate the being involved in the plot to assassinate the king anyway but that aside at that point this type of meditation is what is taught by the uh, Sangha hierarchy, so the top members of the Buddhist um, um, monastic community and even members of the royal family are practicing this type of meditation. So when the Sri Lankan king and novice monks, there are no fully ordained monks at that time in, in Sri Lanka, when they seek to revive Buddhism in Sri Lanka with texts and a monastic lineage and meditation, it's this meditation they get. So in the 18th century, this is still the meditation of choice and it's associated with revival so it's really only in the late 19th century 
um, with the influence of Thailand and um, Burma, um, a different um, regime in Thailand that we see this um, this dropping away. Um, yeah, so um, shortly after this, the Burmese invade Thailand and the um, there's a whole dispersal out of the capital then and we get the new capital next to Bangkok, modern Bang um, capital in Bang Bangkok being started. So these texts that go and the practices that go to Sri Lanka in the middle of the 18th century are really crucial evidence because they happen just before some more devastating um, wars in Southeast Asia itself. Yeah, this I mean, this this whole topic is is fascinating to me in part because of the implications of something, some of the stuff, some of the developments you just traced, because um, it's the intermixing of politics and and religion here that um, that has dimensions that I that I that I surely didn't fully appreciate before reading your book, and um, it's not just you know the uh, specific political agendas being enacted, but it's also the way in which monastic monastic communities interacted more generally with these political agendas that that you know members of the sangha were um, embodying, but also um, were responding to in their, in, in their social context. Perhaps you could say something a little bit about that. I think a lot of, for example, a lot of West people growing up in the West will not realize that you could take your monastic vows and return the monastic vows. That's not a, that's not generally perhaps understood as, as widely as possible. And there are implications to how that plays out with the political um, development. So, so if you could say something about that, I'd appreciate that. Yeah, so this um, idea of a relationship between political power and Buddhism goes back at least to the um, Indian Emperor Ashoka in the third century before the Common Era. So he's meant to have prevented Buddhism from falling into corruption by sponsoring um, sponsoring a kind of purification of the Sangha and sponsoring a rehearsal of the text and things like this. And so there's this tradition going back to at least then that, that kings should be protectors of um, Buddhism. And, um, and so uh, kings have kind of legitimized their uh, rule in part by um, having this close association with the Sangha. Often there's been um, sort of complex economic relationships so kings that have, um, when monasteries get lots of land from donations to make merit um, then at certain points um, kings might want that land back <laughs> and so there might be reforms for political reasons or they might want men for their armies so might want to disrobe a lot of monks to, to mm. get some young men for their armies so the, the relationship is quite um, complicated this thing of um, ordination of how long you ordain for so as far as we can tell from at least what I'm going to call the commentarial period so after the canon is laid down you have these interpretive texts and these go back um, they're probably earlier than the fifth century common era the Buddhists believe they go back to the, just after the time of the Buddha himself and um in those, it says you can get ordained and disrobe as long as you as many times as you want. Doesn't matter. So if it doesn't work out, you can leave. In this 18th century reform in Sri Lanka, when they brought the meditation and a new monastic lineage from Thailand, at that point they said no 
being a monk is lifelong automation. So I don't know why they did that at that point and whether that was the case previously in Sri Lanka. We just don't have the evidence, but it looks as if people could come and come and go. And so that means that joining the monastery was a way of getting good a good education. And also, if you were somebody like a prince in Thailand at a time of um, when the old king dies, it's a way of staying safe. So there have been... Um, there have been at times when old kings have died in in Thailand the brothers of the many brothers have often fought for who then becomes king and so there have been poisonings and disappearances and things like this and so the king we most associate with modern reform king Mongkut of Thailand he was a monk for a long time while he was avoiding his half-brother who took the throne and so he disrobed only when the half-brother um, died and he then became king. So being a member of the monastery kept you kind of out of politics um, and, um, and could keep you safe, but also might be a preparation for a political life as well. But, and you but, still have, so for instance, in Burma now, monks may, even very senior monks, may be persuaded to disrobe, leave the Sangha, so that the government, this is particularly the case with the military government, so the military government had uh, members of staff who were highly informed about the Sangha, about the monastic community in order to control them. Mm. So even people in their 50s and 60s who you'd have thought might stay as lifelong monks, they will leave the Sangha as well. But normally if people are going to leave, they leave in their um, 20s and 30s so that they can have a, a lay career and get married and that kind of thing. So, so you mentioned Mongut uh, in Thailand. That uh, one interesting element to this, this question of the interaction of politics and dharma is the fact that he had a strong opinion about what was in and what was out, as far as uh, uh, what was relevant in the teachings. And when he becomes the king, it's it's like even if he doesn't enforce it by law just very naturally everybody is going to want to uh, resonate around him because this is uh, the the source to power and promotion that's right um so i think it really starts with the value of missionary education so christian missionary education wasn't just about uh, the bible it included literacy western science um, medicine even and so um, royal families around the world would employ um, missionaries as school teachers. So it's not just having missionary schools uh, sent by colonial governments or even not sent, even when there were secular governments, they'd be kind of permitted, let's say, um, or encouraged. Um, so Monkut had this um, access to missionary education. So he and he and his whole um family so generations below him took a strong interest in things like um western um astronomy um things like this so he he's basically had this scientific outlook but science at that point becomes the science of the west this has a huge influence on thailand over generations and in fact makes it you know a center for medical knowledge in the end so um so these collaborations and these collaborations happened because the british and french were competing for thailand 
And even after they signed the Entente Cordiale and that neither of them would take any more land, they were still competing for influence and to get timber commissions or mineral commissions, this kind of thing. Mm. So, um, so a lot of back and forth going on. And meanwhile, Moncourt, as a monk, he studied meditation with actually one of the best practitioners of this esoteric practice. But as I've mentioned, it's quite complex. So it takes a long time to move through the stages of this practice. And I'm sure he was aware that he was a, a short-term monk in the sense, not very short-term, but a short-term monk. And he was pretty impatient. He also, um, the missionaries influenced him in ideas of accessibility. Um, and so he um, had the first uh, printing press used by Buddhists in Thailand, adopted, taken from a, a missioner, uh, missionary. And... Um, yeah, so he had these ideas about what was scientific. Um, he shared with Westerners the idea that true Buddhism was quite simple. And he started a reform towards simplification of things like the monastic dress, which had become very symbolic. So it had lots of parts to it. And that symbolism um, related to things like the parts of the embryo in the womb. I mean, there's quite, quite detailed symbolism that you could see from an outsider perspective or a modernizing perspective seemed quite irrelevant maybe to what early Buddhism was teaching. And so all these things that he felt were corruption. So there's this shared attitude towards Buddhism as simple, these things as corruptions between colonial powers and sort of modernizing elite in Thailand. And so he starts his own movement um, within the sun, so this is when he's still a monk, he starts a new monastic lineage, which has this modernizing agenda and has a new educational agenda, um, which goes back to the Pali text. And then his son, grandson, take on this modernizing um, trend after him. Um, it also, however, has a political connection because this relationship between King and Sangha means that his senior that his teacher has a loyalty to his half-brother. So when he starts off his own monastic lineage, every monk in that lineage from now on is going to be loyal to him. And sure enough, after he's disrobed for the next couple of generations, the monastic lineage he set up really becomes associated more with administration than anything else because it ends up representing the Sangha and having the sort of senior posts within the monastic community throughout Thailand, because one of the things Thailand does in order to um, shore up its identity against these, these colonial threats is it uses Buddhism as an identity marker. And all the monks, so the, the temples and monasteries present in, in, you know, not every village, but in many villages across Thailand. So it's an organization that exists at every level. It exists at the top and it exists next to every person as it were well among buddhists and then they start trying to convert others to buddhism to to shore up that identity more so this monastic lineage that he sets up ends up becoming the dominant monastic lineage in terms of power and having say over what happens in buddhism around the country and that's why his attitudes end up being so influential so we've got this idea of thailand being a country of buddhists yeah. and um, and that the Buddhism is a way of reforming and influencing people. Well, that's fascinating. Uh, um, but I'm, 
so so I'd like to continue uh, following the uh, trajectory of the book of your book itself, uh, which starts off with this early uh, and middle, I suppose, uh, colonial period, um, returns to the um, political developments later. Uh, but I'd like to get into the the actual features of of Oran Kamatana, which is this old meditation that that you've identified. So so could you sort of sketch for our listeners um, how that how that manifested, um, what what the basic ideas, beliefs, and practices were? Great. Yeah, I'll have a go. Um, I'd first like to say a bit about Abhidhamma. So Abhidhamma, people may know, it fills the third part of the Buddhist of the Pali Canon. So it's the um, basket of Abhidhamma, and Abhidhamma usually interpreted to mean higher teaching. It's it's quite abstruse. It consists of lots of lists, and that's because it's trying to document causality. So we all know that impermanence is one of the key teachings of Buddhism. And impermanence means loss, but it also means that there's change and you can influence change. And so Abhidhamma is really interested in how you influence change. And so it breaks down everything into these um, components of reality, which it calls Dhamma. And then it looks at how they causally relate to each other. And also in... um, in terms of um, the sort of closer interpretation of impermanence within Theravada, so this is a specifically Theravada thing, is they say things are not just impermanent, they are momentary. So everything is changing moment by moment. Now, there are different speeds of change. So physical change is slower than mental change, but all this change is happening. And so what they're interested in then is if you want to change somebody from an ordinary person to an enlightened being, how do you go about it? How do you start off with all this, you know, corruption and all these negative mental states and this kind of thing to this pure state of of being an enlightened being? And so there's a path in Abhidhamma that um, basically says, right, you replace everything moment by moment. You can, so if change is going to happen anyway, and so if all the Dhammas that we're made up of now are going to be changing, what about if you bring in the positive change so your mental state instead of allowing it to follow on as it might anyway you start injecting some positive qualities in there and it calculates then what can lead to what so can a negative mental state lead directly to a positive one or does there need to be an intermediate state this kind of thing so it maps out this really complex um, set of connections and the last book of the Abhidhamma Pitaka, the, um, the, so the last book of the canon, is actually so long because it's working out all these causal connections that it is impossible to write it down. So it's the only book of the canon that isn't written down. What you get instead is samples of how to make these calculations. Okay, So that's the background. We've got this idea in Theravada that change is not just possible, uh, not just inevitable, but it's possible to influence change and that's our hope from changing from our ordinary selves to an enlightened being and the qualities the um, components that make us up are either physical um, or made of consciousness or they are aspects of consciousness so there's these three categories and aspects of consciousness means every time you have a moment of consciousness there are components to it 
And this meditation practice, so this Baron practice, what it seeks to do is follow that path of change. So you do the meditation to change aspects of consciousness. And by progressively replacing these, you then move along this path. But it's connected with the body as well. So your, your, your mental states and your components of your mentality, they also need to be brought into the body and change the body as well so that means you have this you do your meditations you generate these mental states and then these often create kind of um side effects might say so i mentioned seeing lights colors of light um these are seen as diagnostic symptoms and then they get used to represent the quality and they get brought into the body and then this process of bringing in the into the body is very repetitive. You bring in lots of combinations. So there's a kind of mathematics going on, the mathematics that we find in the Abhidhamma, working out how many different things work, um, relate to each other. That is then applied in this meditation at the higher levels. The early stages, all you're doing is um, creating a kind of focus and allowing these experiences to arise. And your teacher will say whether you've correctly achieved the state that you were hoping for so they have um in cambodia where i've practiced they have a kind of diagnostic manual and it says yes if this person's seen this color experienced these sensations they've reached this stage and they can go on to the next one but then once you get more uh, fluent in this practice you start recognizing these for yourself and you bring them into the body in the correct order and you're essentially trying to physically enact this path of change so you change your consciousness, you use it to change your body. So there's this real sense that the Buddha uh, is completely physically changed by his enlightenment experience. And I would say that's something that um, drops, that gets kind of lost in the modern period. Um, so we don't really have that idea in modern um, meditation practices, certainly as they've transferred to the to the West. So uh, a couple of questions in this. Um, you mentioned... Uh, mental consciousness aspects and body. I think it's uh, Chitta, Chitta, uh, Chittasaka, and uh, Rupa. Uh, uh, when I was reading the text, maybe you could help me here. Uh, uh, how is uh, Chitta uh, and Chittasaka different? I mean, what is an aspect versus a state? Yeah, so um, yeah, it's a good question. So um, a moment of consciousness will include things like focus on a single thing. So that focus is an aspect. Um, it might have a quality of um, softness about it. That's an aspect. Um, it might have a quality of, um, let's see, positive intention about it. So, so some positive aspects, um, or there might be some negative ones. Um, and those all color the moment of consciousness. Okay. So... Yeah, and there might be many aspects, but there have to be at least seven in any moment of consciousness. So you can't just have pure consciousness that is a single. Um, so, you know, the, the sort of um, Vedanta Hindu idea of consciousness as one, um, that that's not present at all in, in Abhidhamma. So it's looking at all these different components. And some of those components are consistently there, like a focus on something, and others of them change. Um, so an aspect is a, in a sense, a color of the. Uh, I mean, I, when I see uh, triplets like that, it, it starts to feel like like 
uh, mind feeling body, but it's not quite that. It's so feelings are could be an aspect of consciousness. Okay. Yes. So you're right. Yeah. So so then the and and then just to re recap what you were saying, I mean the the, the key element here is that this system of the Brahmakamatana is really focused on transformation in all three of those. Exactly. And just to, so people who are familiar with Theravada may be very familiar with this idea that we're made up of five aggregates. So there's the body, then there's the sensations, then there's the naming of them, the responses to them, and then there's consciousness itself. And those three middle ones, those are the Chaitasika. So yeah, so it's basically analyzing that in more detail. Okay. Yes. And as you say, you have to change all three aspects to change from an ordinary individual to enlightened being. So the so the the aspect of changing the body is 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 the was the remarkable thing to me in reading your book because I didn't you know we've had a lot of <clears throat> excuse me Buddhist guests on this show and a lot of Buddhist friends and uh, uh, and and the body doesn't seem to have the focus or be the focus of a meditative agenda and plan um, in the other traditions that I'm aware of. Um, I suppose the Tibetan might, Tibetans might have something. I was going something. to say the Tibetan maybe the, <laughs> the closest. Both, both traditions have this interest in and relationship with medicine. Yes, so right. The, and so you see Tibetan tradition changing from the 16th century onwards as it comes across other medical systems or change its practice to medicine uh, its way of doing um uh you know analyzing the body and dissecting the body and that kind of thing so so yes that's and it looks on the surface as if these two systems are related and so when um there were was criticism of this type of practice in modern thailand people said oh it's a corruption it's come from tibetan influence because of that similar focus on the body right right so the other the other uh point and and i may be projecting here so so help help me out um if i am is is that um the way that the bot that changes happen in the body i mean i i don't want to take away from your very lucid uh, description of that a few moments ago but but in my own personal interpretation what i'm projecting is that is that some of these the, the lights the colors etc being brought into the body is actually what i what i in my own tradition would call the use of imagination mm-hmm. and 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 that also is uh, other than in the Tibetan tradition <laughs> in buddhism seems like a a relatively rarely appreciated tool that that um, is used in different traditions. Uh, so I'd, I'd like you to comment on that if if there's something that comes up in response. I have a question for you since you yes. looked at this. So one mm-hmm. of the things I've struggled with is the word visualization mm-hmm. with imagination. So in in the more traditional versions of this practice, you are not allowed to know what you're supposed to experience. Mm-hmm. So you're told the mechanisms to bring about the experience but you're not told what to experience and that's why you have the teacher diagnosing whether you've got it or not right and they actually think it's better if you can't understand Pali language and this kind of thing so that you can't understand the terms given to these experiences even mm-hmm. um, 
So, and whereas in, say, the modernized versions of this, so the Dhammakaya network of temples uses a modernized version that came from um, a teacher, is a 20th century teacher, and they um, they actively visualize. And again, it's it's the fast the the fast route to to this experience is to tell people what to experience, and mm-hmm. then they won't have to spend so long um, doing it. So, is there a word? to so visualization i tend to think of active visualization using your imagination to create something but is there a term to describe when visions arise it's not quite spontaneously because you've generated them but they are not based on imagination if you see what i mean well they're they're not based on uh on a projection of of a goal yeah. Uh, um, I wish there were a term, and I and I and I really am grateful to you uh, for suggesting that there ought to be such a, a distinction in language. Because um, I mean, as I reflect back on my own practice um, in the Gurdjieff tradition, uh, imagination is 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 a naughty thing. Well, it's, it, it, it's it, a, classically, it's associated with daydreaming. It's associated with daydreaming. So, so there's in, the, in the simplest in the simplest form. There's a different term that's used for what we're talking about. It's not. A, right. I can't remember what it is, but it's. We've had this conversation with uh, uh, long-term fourth-way practitioners because because in, in as Rob's saying, like in magical traditions, and um, and I think you see this in Tibetan traditions. There's more of a utilization of imagination, but it it seems to be scripted. And in magical traditions, you, it, the idea is that you're creating a body for something to inhabit. So, yeah. so, so for a magical practitioner, if they're visualizing a deity, they're creating a container, and, and for a while, that it's completely subject to what whatever you're projecting onto it but uh when the transformation happens or when the when the body is complete then something outside of yourself can inhabit it and then you have a an interface as it were to communicate with something uh, right and you might later get confirmation of what that is right but it's somehow but you don't know whether it's idiosyncratic to you or or something part of the path until yeah, you know, you, you come across that sort of naming coming from outside yeah. as well. Yeah, and and, and uh, the other thing I'd say that comes up in this question is um, I've seen traditions that are highly visualized, uh, even even some modern uh, uh, semi fourth way slash sushi traditions that give very clear visualizations of colors of essences and different parts of the body. The problem I see with that is that just because people are suggestible and because people have this active visualization capability, when you draw it out so clearly, you run the problem that someone will, it can be a good student and see everything, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the transformative power that's inherent in, in that experience is available because uh, they've mediated something conceptually because of their expectations. So I, I tend to personally, I'm sympathetic with the view that, you know, telling people the answers uh, 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 is has a potential problem with it. Uh, that I don't think you, I don't think it's any faster in the sense that uh, uh, even if you have the answer, there's still a. <laughs> In order for something to be energized properly, there's still a, a period of time. Yeah. Does, does that make sense? Yeah. 
exactly there's still a process that has to be gone through rather than yeah the um so that's one of the distinctions in the modern period i would say is the most popular sort of um tradition that dates goes back to this baran practice is one that actively visualize visualizes the sri lankan texts i've mentioned that are so detailed it doesn't give you any clue how to start this meditation and so when i was looking at the texts on their own i had no clue what they meant they seemed very repetitive not at all what i thought meditation was meant to be about and i i confess i gave up i gave up and then someone pointed me to the work of francois bizot who had documented the living tradition just as it was about to disappear um with the marxist revolutions in cambodia and laos um and so this practice was still um the favored practice of the head monk in uh, in laos until 1974 and then that's on the eve of the marxist revolution so without the documentation by uh, francois bizot back then um i don't think i would have sort of twigged what was going on at all i needed to combine that practice tradition and these um textual traditions to get this overview of of what was going on but i have now forgotten the question that re- that initially triggered well, okay. <laughs> that is well, well, it was a good excuse i mean i think well we- i mean i think i think the initial question was simply to to discuss uh precisely the 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 two poles if you will of imagination that is uh oh, you mentioned the concrete that. direction the concrete yeah. direction versus the creating of a context within which something yeah. beyond can and actually enter. i have a i have a story uh, to, uh that uh i suspect that this um uh there's a connection here I had a, in, when I was in college, so this is in the um, uh, early 80s, I had a friend who uh, was very interested in Southeast Asia and traveled to Vietnam. He even learned a little Vietnamese. Uh, so he, even while we were in college, I think he got some grants to go over, you know, for a period of time and do whatever he was doing, which uh, was partly artistic. Uh, but he told me the story of uh, meeting this uh, Buddhist monk and uh that there was a very specific meditation that he that he was given and it basically involved having a circle with a dot and then you're supposed to sort of cross your eyes slightly to you know move the dot into the circle and then you do this and then and then he was told that you know a vision would come up and then and then he this monk had like a book of interpretations of these visions didn't sound like any sort of buddhism to me uh, uh at all but but then when i <laughs> But then when uh, I re- read your book, that memory came back and it said, wow, you know, that that actually <laughs> feels very resonant with uh, what's being described here. Yes, that's right. Uh, yeah, I keep hoping that some kind of archaeological, like drawings on monastic caves or something will come mm-hmm. up so that we can sort of date these practices a bit more, actually, to, because the circles are very distinctive. So in, in the text... Um, from Sri Lanka that I've looked at these are attempts to show you where to place your experiences within the body so initially it was kind of odd because you're you might be so there's a text that will say place the experience of being a non-returner in your navel and so it's very you know and these these little diagrams say and then you have to move it here so so once you've placed the experience in the body you move them around the body to change the body 
Um, so there's a, actually, we talked about the relationship between politics and um, monasticism um, or Buddhism before, but there's also, because of this idea of changing the body, there is this connection between um, these practices and military protection. So other kinds of protection as oh. well. So there are all sorts of intersections mm. um, because of the body, both in both directions, you know, so these connections. Um, in terms of these light experiences, they, I think most serious meditation practitioners experience them and um, in within Theravada certainly experience them. But the traditions vary very much about whether they think they are side effects that you should ignore or whether they're something um, diagnostic or even further, whether they are something you um, follow. And so in the Cambodian practices I've done, these um, lights actually, the colors are the diagnostic aspect, but they might do quite complex things. So they might actually teach you elements of the Dharma. So you're doing something that you might traditionally think is a summer practice. And then through it, you get some kind of insight that's about you know more like a, um, a vipassana insight and they can be quite narrative so they can be quite um quite spectacular and i think that that's probably i'm quite a greedy person so i think this is one of the things that that i like about the practice because it gives you something you know is a, a pleasant experience yeah. and very enjoyable there can be dark experiences too uh, and that's when it's good very good to have a, a community around you that explains these things that's in a traditional manner so i had a a bad experience, bad experience when doing one of these meditation practices and I had all these quite graphic gory um visions and um this was they were very specific as well um and then this was interpreted as my ancestors needing help so we had a big merit making and feeding amongst and things so, oh, wow. so there's a a nice um doing it within the traditional context gives this nice support as well to, to what's going on with these, these I, I, I love i love the the i mean obviously having a community is context in and of itself but but then um the idea of reaching out to the community of ancestors is is another thing um uh, this is an, an aside but i i have a a dear friend who i i was in grad school with and we did a project together and we had her to dinner recently, and her work, um, this was in my field of uh, my anthropological archaeology, and she's been doing work with um, uh, dispersed, communi- dispersed Chinese communities from the Pearl River Delta in China, southeast China, and the folks who came to the United States and then returned um, in the 19th or 20th centuries Etc. And and so she was. Um, she's been doing the ar- archaeology in in this community in, in China, and and her uh, her explanation of a, her understanding of how ancestors were understood even today in the twenty first century by um, uh, People who whose it might it might have been their great grandparents or their great great grandparents, or just their parents or grandparents. Um, um, they live outside China, but they still come back to this um, place of ancestor veneration. And that context, that sort of context, was was something I hadn't I hadn't seen. Uh, explained as clearly and and so 
Um, and so here I'm hearing you, you say that, that this could be that, that the understanding of our connection to ancestors is actually a useful tool for contemporary contemporary practitioners of, of meditation this is fascinating to me <laughs> i always wonder how somebody without that context would interpret their bad bad meditation experiences because it would just mm -hmm. seem on the face it's apologies for <laughs> nearby motorbikes um the, so people might just think that the meditation was going wrong rather right, than right right giving some kind of, of uh, message so exactly yeah, which turned it into an entirely positive experience yeah. Well, and but and this is this is so interesting that the 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 visualization that 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 realm of vision is utilized. You know, it's not dismissed. It's not. It, it's treated as something real, energetically real, and something that is is important to respond to, not fix, I guess, but respond to as part of this transformational project. That's right. In fact, I think that the ability to connect with ancestors is, and the recently departed as well, is one of the motivations that's kept this meditation going in Cambodia because people, people who are um, very strong in this meditation are thought to be able to guide the departed to the next rebirth. Mm. And so it's important to have one of these meditators in a funeral at Cambodia. So when I was first going around trying to so I should just say that after the restoration of democracy in in Cambodia, um, in the 1990s, we have an initial revival of these practices, but then it disappears again and imported Vipassana becomes the dominant practice. So it became this tradition initially reflourished and then started disappearing. And I was trying to track down practitioners and it was actually very hard. Um, but one of my breakthroughs was when this um, man had come down from a temple. Um, so this, I was about an hour from, uh, from the capital Phnom Penh and this man had come down to learn this practice in order to be able to perform funerals because there was nobody mm. else in the area who had it. And so that's how I found mm. out that there was a temple practicing in the neighboring area. I'm not sure now what they do because they have a somebody who has the name of the meditation practitioner in the funeral, but most Cambodians don't practice this tradition now. So I don't know if it's just become a nominal thing, but it was very important. And quite a few of the, so most of the practitioners um, I regularly practice with were um, older women and they, um, the practice is in, in a sense of preparation for the next life. And you actually, you, um, when you're initiated into it, you get this bundle, which represents your components of your body and the aggregates, which you hold as you're dying um, uh, to help you with your next rebirth. But a lot of those women enjoyed the aspects of the meditation, which they felt were about having connections with deities and things like this. So they'd have um, Sort of visions of um of individuals and um sometimes very attractive and this could be seen as dangerous as well being attracted too much to a, a you know a very beautiful vision um so the nun who i first spoke to at the temple where i stayed um she told me that because of her practice the abbot had given her a special robe that wasn't a nun's robe it was a white robe like nuns 
but it had it was cut like a, a monk's robe and this was a special recognition. It was only a couple of years later when she was telling me the story again that I realized that the abbot had given her this robe not in this life but after he'd died. So she'd, oh. she'd had a vision ah. and for her this was as real as if he'd done it before he, he died. So yeah so this this um, aspect of what you see in meditation certainly within the Cambodian tradition is taken very seriously and is a core component of it whereas I'd say in the versions of this I come across in Thailand um, this is more um, just seen as a sign of the development of the stage and, and you don't follow those those signs further you're just using them for um, going through the stages of the practice yeah well this is i mean and, and one aspect of what you were just saying um when i was reading the book you know uh, reading reading through your book you get all this stuff about what men are doing <laughs> right and here suddenly um is this is this aspect of women actually engaging in the in in these practices and and as you've just described and i, I and i just um i want to uh, offer some appreciation uh, about that because um, it gets kind of sad to me that that what women were doing is kind gets in texts which is one of your source source materials you know, it gets uh, elided it's it's not it's not discussed and 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 so this was a this was a very rich part of your book that that I wasn't expecting um, from from the early material. I mentioned earlier Francois Bizot, the French scholar who um, started documenting the living tradition. It, it started because he was married to a Cambodian lady, and his mother-in-law was disappearing off in you know to practice, and he asked what she was doing, mm -hmm. and she was so she was living at home, but she was. Mm -hmm. um, had a separate little hut where she was going to practice this tradition. So that was the inroad into this practice. In Cambodia, women can't officially be teachers. It's uh, obviously in modernized Cambodia, universities, mm -hmm. this is changing. But um, the nun who I first met, who was a very experienced practitioner, she refused to teach um, because it would be going against the code for women, what good women should do. Um, so, and that means I think that there is a very strong risk that it will be lost because there are a few male teachers the very most experienced one died just um uh, just a couple of of years ago and so um that means there's a risk that the transmission is going to be lost so I um and be, they don't advertise they say it's up to people's karma if they end up studying this tradition so the, the, yeah, there's a real strong, so it needs to be a, a man. It doesn't have to be a monk who's the teacher, um, but most of the practitioners are female. That's a, that, that was a surprise <clears throat> to me. And, and, and so um, it leads to all kinds of speculation, of course, about what was happening in, with, with the actual practice of people on the ground in earlier times as well. Yeah. How, how involved, you know, a, um, lay women were or semi lay women i'm not i'm not quite sure uh from from your description of how to how to think about it yeah so for in cambodia there were traditionally so even children uh, sort of teenagers would learn this practice so it may have been a coming of age hmm. right that people did um so 
and sort of learn meditation during this, the three months of the rainy season, which we think of as being a retreat period for monks, was mm-hmm. also a time for lay people to learn things at the monastery, including this meditation. So in Cambodia, traditionally, there was a kind of nine day period after the rice harvest and then another three month, possible three month period, um, uh, you know, the, the traditional rain, rainy season. There's a lovely, you reminded me of um, a passage in Buddhaghosa. So Buddhaghosa is this fifth century, common, um, very famous commentator who also wrote the Visuddhimagga, the path of purification, which has been so influential in modern meditation. He's also attributed with a commentary on the Mahasatipatthana Sutta. So the, the Sutta that teaches, um, is probably the most important text for teaching meditation in, in the Pali Canon. And in his commentary, he's talking about this wonderful country where everyone meditates the whole time. And he says that, you know, when women are meeting at the Ford and someone asks this woman, what meditation are you doing? And she says, I don't meditate. They say, you fool, you must. And they start talking about, you know, what meditation she might practice. So even the fifth century, he's conceptualizing this this place where, you know, women are, when they're going about their business, what they're discussing is is meditation. So for him... Who we think of him as being kind of the epitome of Theravada orthodoxy, which doesn't really feature women much, and yet there he is talking about women at the Ford. That's great. About meditation. <laughs> they, got, they have to gossip, but they're gossiping about meditation. <laughs> so, so um, uh, you mentioned uh, your own practice in this uh, uh, before you started uh, seriously studying Boran Kamatana. Did were you practicing in a? Um, uh, Theravadan tradition? Um, not, a, not a specific tradition. I had actually practiced a modernized version of this um, when I was an undergraduate because I was very lucky that I um, went to Oxford at the same time or just a couple of years after a Thai monk who actually did a PhD on this topic, but he um, he was a practitioner within the Dhammakaya and he was teaching me this practice and I found it so visual so maybe I'm too official that because you I was bringing in so the practice was you visualize it's one way you visualize you visualize this kind of crystal ball which um in the other tradition spontaneously arises with lights and you bring it through your nostril on this and I found it so physical it made me feel nauseous (laughs) probably good reason for me to do the more traditional practice rather than visualization um so I'd done quite a bit of I say quite a bit. I had tasted quite a few meditation traditions. I wouldn't say I'm a, a good meditator, it's, but it's something that had um, that I'd found valuable mm-hmm. since a child, on and off, and then you know sometimes fallen out of use, um, then sometimes regained it. And I had it at school as well instead of geography. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I think I was, and partly what I was asking uh, was uh, uh, if there was a a contrast, but it sounds like you're in, for whatever karmic reasons you, you have been engaged with this meditation for quite a, uh, a while. So I, you um, know, for, I, what I'm, I guess what I'm wondering is like for someone who practices Vipassana or has been uh, introduced to Vipassana, how would this be different, you know, in terms of the experiential dimension? What comes to mind immediately, and I haven't thought this through, but I'll say it anyway, is that it's kinder. Hmm. And I don't know why that came to mind. Um, so actually, it's quite rigorous. And obviously, there are 
aspects of it that are quite physical that are not practiced now, but we just see brief glimpses of them in, in what elderly people were saying, you know, a few decades back, just after the Pol Pot period. So, um, yeah, so the physical side of it is obviously very striking. Um, the, I say kinder because you're taken very gently through lots of stages. You're not immediately trying to seek some insight into something that might be quite remote. And actually the, the Thai teacher, um, whose temple I mentioned, Rajasitaram in Tombury, um, they take this practice back to the Buddha's son Rahula, who they say wasn't the you know, sharpest pencil in the box and he needed <laughs> things teaching gradually. So this is a gradual process that takes you through each stage step, step at a time. Um, and they, um, yeah, so they're very conscious of this being a progressive path. And so maybe that's why I think it's kinder. Um, but maybe that's also just my experience of, you know, I've had very kind teachers who've been very accommodating of, of my um, inadequacies, shall we say, in my sort of, yeah, I, I'd say I'm a lazy meditator, so I like it to be comfortable. <laughs> I like it to be, uh, you know, a supported experience. Um, but also I should say I'm not a very experienced meditator. So in, in my book, I'm trying to describe meditation practice, but of course I'm, you know, still a novice. Um, but at the same time, what interested me about this tradition, I suppose I was like, why is this seen as, be, as being um, unorthodox? Why did it get suppressed? Um, what is it trying to do? So I, in a way, I feel like I'm a, a, what should we say, a strong agnostic. I was looking at it thinking, this may not be my system. Obviously, I ended up practicing it, but, but somebody put a lot of energy into this. In fact, lots of people put lots of energy into this. What were they trying to do? And that's, and it was um, an argument over feminist interpretations of Buddhism that led me to start seeing what was going on. So I was working in a department where there was a kind of friction between feminist readings and kind of text-based readings. And this was epitomized in my field by um, readings of Tathagata Garba. So this idea that we will have a Buddha within. So there's a feminist take on that that sees that as a positive affirmation of women. You know, so the pregnant woman has the Buddha within. But the kind of anti-feminist approach, which has good basis in text saying, no, because the pregnant woman is, a, is like the body you discard and you're trying to develop the Buddha within and that replaces the body. Yeah. So this was this kind of tension and the tension is very big. I didn't like tension. So I, and I was brought up in the textual tradition. So I was kind of like, um, had learned an anti-feminist response. And um, I thought, well, in the Bodhicharavatara, so this eighth century, Buddhist text um, and from Mahayana tradition there's a meditation you have to do where you have to pretend to be somebody else and it's not a nice pretend so you then pretend that you're that person and you look back at you being abusive to yourself so it's kind of this this really interesting practice and I thought that's what I've got to do in order to understand this feminist perspective I need to pretend I'm that and so I look back at my own text which did mention so the connection with Charlotte Garber is that these texts keep mentioning the womb, that mm -hmm. you're bringing these qualities into the womb. Right. And then, even, even if you're a man, even as you, if you're as a you man, bring as you bring out in the book. And so, and <laughs> so, 
that was the key for me. And I suddenly, and so instead of just dismissing this as being a metaphor, so this idea of creating a new being's metaphor, I was thinking, what are they trying to do? And I suddenly started seeing that the bringing in of the meditation, so it comes from sort of where you've seen it, maybe in, just in front of your mind, in through the nostril and down into the body. These are the same pathways that are used for bringing Ayurvedic medicine down to treat the baby, the fetus in the mother. So you um, make kind of, kind of snuff or liquid and you apply it to the nostril to influence the health of the baby. So in Ayurveda, you see the stay of the baby within the womb is rather uncomfortable. And also you want to create a particular type of baby. So you might want a male or a female, you might want a, a warrior or a scholar or something like that. And you, so Ayurvedic medicine has ways of develop of changing the um the fetuses i think and so and one of the ways is through these intranasal pathways and for me a clinch was really when if you're treating a male embryo you put the medicine on the right side and if you're treating a female embryo the medicine goes in the left nostril and in these practices you have that division so as a female practitioner i should bring things through my left nostril but if i was a male practitioner it'd be through the right nostril and this started me thinking and I began to see the references to um, things to do with embryos um, were very serious. So we're developing an embryonic Buddha within, and we're going to use the means of treating embryos that we find in medicine to treat this Buddha to be with the qualities that you achieve through meditation. So with these positive mental states and aspects of mentality. So that's, and then I started seeing other things like the use of um grammatical terms um, and this kind of process of repetition uh, where you draw in these qualities and draw them out this is parallel to the technique used for purifying mercury and purifying gold so I began to see that this meditation was situated within a scientific context where technologies of bringing about change were applied across different sciences including meditation and this is why i also think it disappeared because um there was competition over med medicine and um colonial powers took control of um metallurgy and so these so people then end up meditating so monks are less involved with technology things like water um technology mm -hmm. things like this and so you get this isolation of meditation from its original scientific community and context um and that's one of the sort of passive ways in which i think it disappears you know that people cease to recognize what these mechanisms are about and why they're thought to bring about change uh, yeah that that was a fascinating aspect of the book that the 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 parallels with the practices that you're describing for spiritual transformation being well situated in the ayurvedic tradition in the alchemical traditions that were Understood. And I think a question that comes up for me, and I was thinking about this when I was reading that, is is that was the, did the technology, the spiritual transformational technology, co evolve with the understandings of those traditions, or was it contextualized because those traditions were present as a way to, as it were, create a meta allegory for transformation? And the reason I the reason I'm asking that is that, you know, this gets into something we may talk about, about the transformation of modern Buddhism in the West, which is 
uh, you know, something in and of itself, uh, uh, but it has a very different uh, allegorical context in which to have to frame itself. And so that, 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 that's why I'm kind of wondering if what you see in that. I, the same question has been present with me for a long time. So is this stuff co-evolving? Is it where res, you, everything resonates? So you, you don't have, you know, a compartmentalization between science and, and spiritual transformation, you know, as something's discovered in one area, it, you know, influences another. Um, yeah, I, I don't know that I'll ever be able to unpick that historically or psychologically because, how change comes about is really and how we develop new systems of doing things is such a fascinating area isn't it and how do we learn from each other do we have to actively learn or do we all start changing as the frameworks start changing i mean i it just is a really interesting area so i i suppose i've assumed that mercury purification comes before using these systems to you know multiple bringing of the buddha qualities into the body or not but i don't know that yeah and yeah i, I just don't know uh, the use of embryology in a way as a metaphor for change it's it's obvious isn't it the generation of a new being but there's that um but this use of embryology is much more detailed use of you know obstetrics the treatment of the baby in the womb is very very detailed yeah we see it in other traditions so do so we see it in Taoism, this um Mm. and in tibetan buddhism as well so another question for me is is there influence coming from you know tibetan buddhism or from Taoism? of course the chinese influence in in southeast asia is very strong so that's possible as well or are these things developing in parallel within their own frameworks um is it the medicine that that so one of the things that i found really interesting is that the same medical texts obviously medicine is something that gets you a, a, a living and everybody needs medicine at some time or other and we find the same ayurvedic um medical texts being translated into arabic in the northwest and in sri lanka and we find them um going over to Central Asia and China. So the medical technology and the the technology of how to purify metal, these are really valuable technologies. So is it those that spread and then change more esoteric um, technologies of change? All open for conjecture. Yeah, it's it's, it's a, I mean, even in the West, the alchemical tradition, some some modern practitioners suggest that it was always about uh, spiritual transformation and that the external transformations were secondary or, in a sense, the physical world was being used as the allegory. <clears throat> and yeah. at some point, people started to lose the allegory and take it literally and think that they were truly transforming lead into gold. But in fact, the, the the lead into gold was a a, a psycho spiritual transformation, not a, a, a physical transformation. Mm-hmm. And so, to some extent, you know, you could almost argue that the perhaps the practice came first, and the uh, the applications to health at, at a physical level or materials might have been secondary. But I, as you say, mm-hmm. how do you, how do you? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, we would need evidence for that. Right. That's right. Yeah, well, I'd like to uh, return to a question I, I uh, 
very early on uh, uh, posed and then delayed asking you to answer, which was about generative grammar. Because I think um, uh, when listeners hear that phrase, they're going to go, huh? Yeah. So... <laughs> <laughs> so if you could if you could describe what you mean by that and how that ties in to this sort of uh, transformational vocabulary um, that we've just been discussing in other arenas, that would be great. I'll have a go. So I think, first of all, perhaps we need to think about language and how magical it is. So here we are, thousands of miles apart, and you're thinking something. You're saying it, so it becomes something physical. It's hitting a surface, you know, it's hitting my ear. And I may not be getting an exact reproduction of it, but it's causing something in my consciousness as well. So it's this amazing medium of change. And it doesn't just have to, you know, it's not just through sound. You could have written this and it would have mm -hmm. had the same effect. So language is this extraordinary bridge between consciousness, physicality and consciousness. Uh, so that's the, the broader context of anything that uses language in, for instance, um, letter alchemy. So um, I'm going to come back to letter alchemy where you use letters or syllables to change things. Um, and, but in um, ancient India, language was thought to be um, a creative principle. And it's one of the things that they thought might be controlling the universe and creating the universe so there were there was speculation about what was the fundamental principle underlying the universe and this relates to the vedic um, sacrificial practices where they use particular mantras they they thought the verses the hymns that they sang to the gods were so important that they had to record them exactly and so this led to all sorts of things like amazing memorization techniques um, uh, to preserve the exact sounds and also grammar the development of grammar to um to understand and correctly use language so the correct use of language really important in ancient india there were other developments in science connected with um sacrificial um the center of sacrifice in in the ancient indian world things like the mathematics of, of trigonometry things like that so you see these so it takes back to what you were saying about you know does the spiritual transformation come first so it has these side effects of changing things and um and the type of grammar that was developed um it's we call it generative grammar because it seeks to create the entirety of the sanskrit language from the verbal roots that um that are the basis of it. And so you take a set of verbal roots and then you apply these rules. And this, the most famous book of this grammar is, is by Parnini. And um, he uh, developed these kind of algorithms. So these rules that you apply to these verbal roots, like go or be or think, and you create everything like thought or um, went or whatever any other any word that exists in the language you should be able to create it by applying these rules and the set of rules he created is not very long so it's a printed it's a it's a, a small pamphlet really um, and it's fascinating in terms of you know sort of a kind of precursor to later and may even have influenced computational language development later on so in the the 20th century but anyway so this traditional this generative grammar is different from the grammar where you just 
just described. So most of us learn languages by learning what's described and then maybe learning a set of patterns. But this seeks to create it all from simple verbal roots. And it does this by um, substitution. So I mentioned this idea of change in Buddhism and um, impermanence and this constant, um, so this momentariness where if you want to make change, you, you substitute the negative thing with something more positive in a series of progressions. And that's what we find in generative grammar, where you start off with your roots and you add things and they have certain effects and you keep substituting with something new and those the original thing so the original meaning of the verb carries on throughout but specifics of it are changed and the form of the word is changed through these rules so and in fact it uses so it's thought to have been the origin of zero as a placeholder so it, it influences mm. maths because you have to explain how you get from one form that may to another and the final form may be very different sometimes erasing everything you've got yeah and so you have this theorization of zero as a placeholder there so this um process of substitution where you bring the original through these processes of substitution i don't know how to explain how this relates to meditation. so um so i started noticing that some of these grammatical terms for these processes, some of the rules were turning up in the context of meditation or in the context of the kind of physical practices <coughs> that derive from this meditation, like the making of protective diagrams and things like this. Um, and so what I began to realize is that the model of um, change was using a similar idea of you know placeholders and substituting where you add in qualities but you've still got the original so if i want to become a buddha i the person i am now is still going to i'm going to be totally transformed but it's still going to be me who ends up gaining that enlightenment through this process of, of transformation um and the reason I mentioned this mag the magic of language, the way it goes from consciousness to physicality to consciousness is because that's also what's happening in these meditation practices. You're using your consciousness to change physicality and then change consciousness in turn. Um, but they also use letter alchemy. So I mentioned the use of these, these lights and things like this as the quality, uh, to represent the quality that you bring into um, into the body well firstly the idea that you can use a representation of something to bring it into the body that fits with with grammar where you you give a, a kind of code to represent all verbal endings for example and then you apply that so we can use representations of our original experience to bring that experience into the body that experience is still going to be there as part of the transformation process um, and then it's not just the lights and things like that you can use. You can use letters, Pali syllables, to represent that experience as well. So I mentioned those diagrams that you get in the text. Well, some of those diagrams have letters on them. So it might be Namo Buddhaya, which means homage to the Buddha in Pali. But actually, each syllable is representing something. So there's a set of very early on, one of the practices you're doing to develop the first jhana. So the first kind of level of altered state of consciousness and focus 
is um, within the so the chaitasakas, these aspects of mentality at the very early stage include things called the five joys. And those namabudhaya syllables are used to represent each of those five experiences of this kind of thrill or delight. And so you represent them with the language and then you bring them into the body and move them around. So this idea that um, you can move transformation between consciousness and physicality and consciousness again, that's something clearly connected with language. But then they're using more specifically ideas where you can substitute with a zero, where you can't see something and the quality is still there. Um, and then um, using code, let code letters to bring about processes into the body. I'm not sure I've explained that very oh. well. It was the hardest part to to write. <laughs> well, it, it's, it's, it's fascinating. Because, uh, one of it the is. things that even as I was reading in the book, but your description now actually underscores this is in the Western magical tradition, the practice of uh, uh, Kabbalah follows a very similar pattern and in some in some esoteric uh, materials the each letter is taken to represent um, a a mental state mm -hmm. a, a a feeling state and a physical state and uh, there's color associated with it there's sound associated with it mm -hmm. and so as one practices first you learn the alphabet and the alphabet is inscribed in the energetic experience of the body but then as one practices with formula, it's like taking uh, two letters, but those two letters represent this uh, psychophysical lived state. And so when you put the two letters together, that's that's a transformation. It's like a movement from that to that. And then larger formulas begin to take, you know, uh, multiple letters uh, together. And so there's a very similar intuition about the this connection of the body is this repository of, of this this of this experience in these different levels being uh connected with a letter and then you can reference these states by use of the letters fascinating fascinating and do you um one of the things i've wondered about with the sri lankan text i was looking at is also how you condense these practices is there a way of using language to do that? I, you know, the, this is a, what's interesting is that when you look at those Western traditions um, and you look at uh, magic formula and things like that, it looks very condensed. I mean, it's uh, I, but a non-practitioner, uh, you know, would have no idea how to bring that alive. Uh, because you see these formulas and then and then of course when it gets uh uh you know into the hands of non-practitioners you you get a sort of a kind of a sorcery that's ineffective because people think they can just say a combination of letters and that's going to do something abracadabra it, yeah abracadabra but it doesn't do anything because unless it's inscribed in uh you know through a deep practice then it has the transformational potential one of the um things that confused me early on in uh, with this practice is there was a book published of one of these meditation manuals in the 1960s um, and this was pretty much after the living tradition had been lost in Sri Lanka I think um, and the, the 
the people, the two monks editing, they didn't recognize this use of language. So basically we had these phrases that represented entire processes. And to them, it looked like the text was ungrammatical. So that so they corrected it all. So <laughs> that, so two words juxtaposed, they thought had to kind of match each other. Whereas in fact, they this single verse might contain 20 processes that have been condensed through the practice. And then as you become more developed, you'll be able to condense them. Um, like you say, with abracadabra, and um, yeah, so that was completely unrecognised um, that that all these processes were in that, and I think it's one of the reasons it got dismissed as being, you know, just made up, just yeah, putting terms together. Yeah, very interesting. Hey, I, I want to be uh, sensitive to your time because you mentioned uh, you had a hard stop. Is that a? Uh, uh, do you need to break in a couple minutes? Maybe in about nine minutes, if that would be all right. Yeah, that'd be that'd Great. be uh, fine. So, so uh, maybe we can um, sort of uh, return then to you know I, I wanted maybe as a coda for this conversation because this has been very rich and uh, fa fascinating. But uh, the the coda for me is uh, looking at what the evolution of this tradition tells us also about uh, how. Buddhism is also changing as it hits uh, the West, because clearly you're living that experience and, and negotiating between how do you hold on to a deep, real tradition versus seeing Buddhism now uh, very much being informed by the modern scientific and sort of atheistic worldview uh, that uh, uh, modernity seems to offer us. Hmm. I'm wondering how you how you how you see that. Uh, uh, the lessons of what you describe in the book being played out in what you see with Buddhism today. In a way, we can look at this practice and see that that happened before. You know, yeah. so the these practices reflect scientific developments that happened after the Buddha. So the changes in mathematics, changes in medicine, and changes in chemistry. Uh, all these things changing um, and development in, in, in language use. Um, so in a way, it's not new. Harnessing what works is, you know, if you take transformation seriously, then you harness what works. That's, and that's why people try different traditions and, and find out what works for them. On the other hand, I suppose I fear that we lose something just as we lose species through modernity yeah um so we're losing a richness of of human experience and these practices take a kind of um a kind of soft consciousness that i think is hard to sustain in the modern period in that we're you know we're kind of constantly responding to external um triggers um you know whether it's our you know our iphones or our tablets or whatever um and so there's whereas these practices you know they're an ongoing deep method of transformation um we don't have that much knowledge now about how the transformation works what it felt like how is experience so i fear a loss of something that's important um yeah. yeah that's i suppose that's a so we can see this change change is always happening use of the latest technologies it's happening that doesn't make it unvalid but um but yeah the risk of loss is, is well, very 
Well, let me also ask, Stuart was asking about the Western context, but what about uh, the Cambodian women that, that we were talking about earlier in the conversation? I mean, how, how I, I mean, I'm not asking you to wave your magic wand and predict what will happen, but I'm, uh, and you, you've already expressed the fear that, that for such, in, in that, in that context, there may be loss as well. Mm. So, um, if, but is there anything else you can say about how that, how that uh, may be? Because you, I've never been to Cambodia or Southeast Asia at all. And I'm curious about your experience of, of the way Buddhism is changing there and spiritual practice is changing there. So I'd say that, you know, Cambodia had ra- very rapid um, consumer development really and so focus on meditation in itself is unusual giving the time to it but because of that pressure on time that we have with a modern lifestyle I would say that's why and the main reason why um, Vipassana is is the method of of choice there and even the women I've practiced with they try different things and they value Vipassana as well so this you know they, they say you know you get quick results in a certain certain ways in in doing it so and it's very accessible you can just go to a class whereas these practices you're meant to stay at a temple for a certain amount of time and you're not meant to practice when you're not with the teacher because it's you know a complex and difficult practice um so i there are two only two teachers i can think of who i think will carry on teaching for their lifetime of both male no female teachers so i i seriously think that there's a a risk that in cambodia we won't have it in you know 20 20 years time at all um in laos it never recovered so if mostly i mean the most monks disrobe after five years there in in the monastery to get an education more senior ones are party members and they often have important administrative roles those who take meditation seriously it's often vipassana that they've learned in thailand so sri lanka people tell me there may be still a living tradition it certainly lasted so i i learned very early on that it died in the 19th century last teacher had died in 1900 but actually people have told me since no they've got evidence of more recent practice so that would be interesting to see so thailand is really um the place where most practices survive despite the reforms but as i've said it's adapted so this is regarded more as a somewhat of practice now whereas i can see from these texts it was vipassana as well and then finally burma is interesting so burma is our main source of vipassana practice um yet there and even things that aren't very vipassana like will name themselves as vipassana because what's orthodox and not orthodox is highly controlled in buddhism in in burma so they've had they have this court system and they can try um buddhists who aren't following what they consider the true dharma for heresy Mm. and that carries with it prison sentence so there's a but there are some interesting practices in burma that may actually go back further and that may be related so on the one hand it looks a bit grim on the other hand you know, I'm just one researcher. There aren't that. There are a few researchers working in this area, but as hopefully, as people become aware of it, they will do go further than I've gone and 
find more things. And certainly of a Thai colleague, um, Pibun Chumpon Paisan, who's found a couple of other living traditions that he's been able to look at. So some pessimism and some optimism. <laughs> so I'm hoping that my book will just be a kind of starting point for people and that others will take this further and also take the practice further because I think being an informed practitioner researcher is key if we're going to look yeah. at take, look at meditation um, traditions yeah. in any detail rather than just looking mm. at the periphery of what happens with meditation. Yeah, and I, I would encourage anyone listening to this that the book is unique because it is an informed practitioner scholar approach and I, I can't see how you could t cover this material uh, and bring it to life in the way that you have without that combination. Yeah, yeah I haven't had the chance to uh, express my appreciation for this uh, with with my background, at least in part in academia, um, to to have the combination of qualities that you bring uh, to writing this book. Um, it's just uh, it's remarkable. It's rare in 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 my uh, experience, and so. Um, you're to be commended on, yes. on that. I don't, I don't know how you manage it. But yeah, but we, but <laughs> Bravo. Yes, and we, we very much appreciate the, the time you've taken uh, uh, with us today because this has been a, a rich conversation, and I think uh, many and people... And the book, the book is, uh, is, a, is a wonderful and provocative exploration yeah. of things that I had no idea about the existence of. So thank you for joining us on The Mystical thank Positivist. Thank you. That's so kind. Uh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you very much. You have been listening to The Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week on the show, we featured a pre-recorded conversation with Professor Kate Crosby, author of Esoteric Theravada. Kate Crosby is a professor of Buddhist studies at King College London. Her work focuses on Sanskrit, Pali, and Pali vernacular literature, and on Theravada practice in the pre-modern and modern periods. Her other publications include Theravada Buddhism, Continuity, Diversity, Identity, and the Bodhicharyavatara. In two weeks on The Mystical Positivist, we feature a pre-recorded conversation with Robin Bloor about his latest book, Gurdjieff's Hydrogens, Volume 1, The Ray of Creation. About the book, he writes, Gurdjieff clearly wanted his pupils to try to understand objective science. He left two accounts of it. One adorns the pages of In Search of the Miraculous. The other merges itself into the text of Beelzebub's Tales to his grandson. He describes its study as a necessity, one of the five Obelgonglian strivings. Yet, most books about the fourth way steer clear of the topic. This book moves in the opposite direction. Robin was born in 1951 in Liverpool, UK. He obtained a BS in mathematics at Nottingham University and took up a career in the computer industry, initially writing software. From 1989 onwards, he became a technology analyst and consultant. He has thus been a writer of various kinds since. In 2002, he was awarded an honorary PhD in computer science by Wolverhampton University in the UK. He currently resides in and works from Austin, Texas in the US. In 1988, after drifting through several work groups, Bohr met and became a pupil of Rena Hands. Rena was a one-time associate of J.G. Bennett and a student of Peter Ospinsky's and later a pupil of George Gurdjieff. Following Gurdjieff's death, she remained part of the J.G. Bennett's group for a while. Subsequently, she formed groups both in London, where she lived, and in Bradford in the north of England, initially in conjunction with Madame Knott. 
She was an accomplished movements teacher and an inspirational group leader. She died in 1994 and is buried next to Jane Heap in the cemetery in North London. Robin leads a group, the Austin Gurdjieff Society in Austin, Texas. He is also the author of To Fathom the Gist, Volumes 1 through 3, which demonstrate methods of reading and comprehending the contents of G.I. Gurdjieff's masterwork, All and Everything, Beelzebub's Tales to His Grandson. Join us for that show on Saturday, June 12th at 4 p.m. Pacific Time. Thank you for joining us once again for the Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com. Join us again next Saturday.